All right, y'all, it's spring, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning our summer festival traveling. Yep, it's time to get into my Airbnb bag cross-country, a.k.a. uh, time to visit my homes all across the country. And you know what I never think about? Why not list my own spot on Airbnb and host some folks at my house? I mean, my house is cute. Yes, let's make money while we're spending money. Just trying to help you out, man, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. What's up, y'all? It's Unpaid Bill, here to give you the latest Questlove Supreme Classic episode. Back in October of 2016, Alan Leeds was our fifth guest on QLS. That conversation, which I encourage you all to check out, has been re-released. But even three hours with Alan was not enough. In 2020, he came back for a two-part interview. Here is Alan Leeds' second QLS appearance from March 18th, 2020. In this one, he talks a lot about his years with James Brown, some really great stuff about playing the Chitlin' Circuit, and putting together those epic James Brown review shows. You can hear why Alan Leeds deserves three episodes. Episode 101. Enjoy. To all you dolls and hip cats across the nation, this is a special edition of Questlove Supreme. I always wanted to talk like a, like a 50s, 60s radio jock. Sound and like Wolfman Jack. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is the quiet edition of Questlove Supreme. Are you only saying that because Lai is not meeting here? Meeting Lai, Lai <laughs> went out for cigarettes. <laughs> Lai yeah. saw Lenny Kravitz outside, so she'll be back in about a month. Yeah. I'm the only smoker here, and everybody else goes keeps out going for out cigarettes. for cigarettes. Right, <laughs> exactly. Ladies and gentlemen, our guest today needs absolutely no introduction if you're a longtime fan of the show. This is one of our rare uh, repeat guests. In my opinion, our guest today is probably one of the most organized humans uh, in show business. At least I'm led to believe that you are. He's shaking his head right now in denial. I would say that he is the glue that really ensures that you would have gotten your money's worth if you are seeing your favorite act perform in concert. Speaking of which, which acts would they be? You could name them all, uh, from Cool and the Gang to Bootsy's Rubber Band, to uh, Kiss, to Prince, whoever that is, uh, to Chris Rock, to D'Angelo, to Raphael Sadiq, to Maxwell, uh, and of course, the main reason that we're all gathered here today, me. <laughs> no, my name is Sugar. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, uh, of course, I'm speaking of uh, his time with James Brown, which probably uh, domino effect. Uh, his long-standing power um, and offered him the credibility to pretty much 
stand next to a gazillion geniuses in, in music. His book, thank God there's this book uh, entitled There Was a Time on Post Hill Press, recently released this late winter. <laughs> Look at that, Bill. Late, it, was, it was late February. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. yeah still it was Tuesday. Oh, okay. <laughs> we don't know that yet. Anyway. Um, yeah, There Was a Time offers a, a rare glimpse into the world of the Chitlin circuit or outside the Chitlin circuit as it morphs into regular show business for most R&B acts. One of my favorite human beings on earth, ladies and gentlemen, welcome Alan Leeds back to Quest of Supreme. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Alan, I'm, yeah, Alan hates, uh, that's where I get it from when you guys say that I eschew uh, compliments. compliments and praise. Alan often cringes when I have to say that as well. Not on the inside. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Gwen tells me it's because you don't know how to take compliments. Yeah. So you pretend you don't care. Right. Trying to be cool. No, compliments um, are very hard. Um, I get it. I wouldn't know. Well, I, <laughs> Steve, you're a great guy. It's nice to see Terrific you. Terrific guy. Thank you, everybody. Yo, so do you, how weird is it for you to be at this phase in your career? Like, are you the type of person that feels like when you write the book, this is sort of a end of a life chapter or, I mean, not to sound super morbid, but I just mean, usually like, no. when people came to me writing books, like, I was like, oh, no, I have more life to live in. Right. I'll save it for later. Yes you know? and no. Okay. Um, no, because I started this book 30 years ago. Really? Yeah. Okay. I a actually started it when my first marriage broke up and I was sitting around with nothing to do. And I said, okay, I got all these diaries and papers. And while it's fresh in my mind, let me start putting stuff down. Now, I couldn't write a lick at that point. You, oh, it was terrible. You was, couldn't? No, I've got the draft. I've seen your liner notes. That was after. Oh, okay. That was after. I'm and impressed. Even the early liner notes are pretty poorly written. But um, <laughs> um, talking about the payback. E e thanks very much. <laughs> I was just asking because that's the first one that I can Wait think of. Wait a minute. He did write the liner notes for the payback on the inside, right? Yeah. Yeah. Payback's yeah. going to be a mother. Damn. I forgot that. Okay. Yeah, that worked. That worked. Yeah, that worked. There was, worked. A, there was a James Brown album called Hey America. Oh, yeah. The, Despite the, the title, it was, it was actually Christmas. a Christmas yeah, record. Yeah. And I wrote the liner notes for that. Okay. And a Jew writing liner notes for a Christmas album is kind of an anomaly to start with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what? Did he ask you to write? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Because um, back then, you know, you had to put information on the back of the album. Well, he thought I was a genius just because I could write publicity releases. Oh. You know, James Brown is coming to town, and, blah, 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 and I could do that in one page, and newspapers would take it and fill their pages up, and so he thought I was Shakespeare. Oh, <laughs> I see. Um, so he said, right, enlightenment. So you started 30 years ago writing this book. Yeah, and it was, it was the kind of thing where, you know, I, that original draft, besides the fact that it's poorly written, bears very little resemblance to the finished book. It's, it's just... Um, that was a bunch of drivel. It was really a tour diary. It was it was like fifty percent personal tour diary and fifty percent James Brown bio. He was born on May third, mm -hmm. you know that kind of stuff. And as time went on, it realized that the the diary was self indulgent and had a lot of stupid stuff that was of no interest to anybody, not even me. 
And, um, you know, it was like what I had for breakfast before the show. It was dumb stuff. <laughs> this guy actually, yeah, yeah. actually would care <laughs> That's the that. shit I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> but I was smoking a lot of weed then. And, <laughs> and it's, it's like. So you kept notes. See, that's the thing. Like, I. That was the hoarder. So am I. Yeah, well, no well, kidding. Yeah, half my house is now. <laughs> yeah, I think we know that. With your stuff. But, um, <laughs> um, no, it, and, and when he left King Records for Polydor in 1971, we're cleaning out the office, and there's tons of file cabinets full of old itineraries, tour routings, publicity pictures, um, all kinds of stuff, the kind of stuff you would think would be in an office like that. And also were recording session reports, um, music union session reports mm-hmm. with dates and who plays what and that kind of tracking sheets from right. sessions like Say It Loud and Funky Drummer, the original tracking sheets. The tracking the sheets were in the office? Yeah. In the Not inside front. the real box where they – Oh, they were probably copies in the real boxes. Right. But, you know. They um, were just meticulous with yeah, filing back yeah, then. yeah. Like, how did you know to save all that stuff? Like, how did you know it would... Because I was a fanatic. I was just... I was already... You were one of us. He never... (laughs) You already knew that it was history by then? Not necessarily. You knew it was historical? No, no, I knew I wanted it. Ah, it was purely selfish. Yeah, it really really was. I'm not mad at that. And this comes from the fact that he never had credits on his records. Right. 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 So to a real fanatic, it was like, okay, who's the drummer on this session? Who's the guitar player on this session? When did this guy leave the band and replaced by the next guy? I was that guy who wanted to know who did everything on his records. Right. And here's the Holy Grail. And it's a copy of the King Master book, which tells you the recording sessions and locations and dates and what time of day and all that kind of crap. So... This is to somebody who was compiling a discography that I never really dreamt anybody would give a shit about except me, but I wanted to know. So I asked him, they're going to trash all this stuff, literally. Dump, put it in a dumpster because we're moving to New York. Well, some of us to Augusta. That's a whole other story that the book tells you. Yeah. But, but and I just said, Mr. Brown, can I? And he's like, yeah, somebody, somebody ought to keep it. It's history. He knew it was history. I knew it was a collection I wanted. It was like baseball cards to me. I want the collection. That was it. Okay. And, of course, time went by, and you begin to realize that this is going to be worth something one day. And right. as, as his, his stardom becomes iconoclastic and so on as time goes on, you really begin to get a sense that, like, okay, I really need to preserve this and document it properly and so on. I mean, I've got a 400-page discography that has every session he's ever produced and even has the bootlegs of all the concert recordings. It, I mean, it's, it's stupid. Do you have the a detail that is stupid. <laughs> no, who publishes that stuff? I mean, I mean it's, I'll it's, read it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I'll read it and obsess over it. No, I'm, I'm serious. Well, the, no, it's the, the very important would, that but that it, comes out. Exactly. It's important. Yeah. Uh, so it, I can assume that if they can do it for the Beatles, they can do it for James Well, Brown. as an aside, everybody that I've talked to says, well, make it a coffee table book. You don't need all the details. And I'm like, no, no, no. It's all about the, the details. details. Yeah. They, they just don't get it because they're just looking. It's a research book. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's not a coffee table book. It's not for the casual, casual fan. It's, it's, it's for us. Right. So can I assume that the – so you really were the source of most of the information in the Star Time box set? Yeah. 
So you're the, so anytime I read who's on what and blah blah blah, pretty much. So without that, we would have just been guessing. Yeah, literally. Yikes. Now, mind you, as time would go on, every time they'd have a session, and this this continued for years after I stopped working for him, um, I would call Fred Wesley or David Matthews, the arranger, mm-hmm. and. You know, done any sessions lately? Where? When? What did you record? Who was on the session? I used to drive them crazy. Matthews talks about it in his wax poetic story. He's like, yeah, Alan Lee's. I never really knew what he did, but he used to drive me crazy about details on the sessions. And he would write everything down. Um, so, yeah. Do you have any of the uh, original charts? Were the charts also in the office as no. well, like the horn no. arrangements and no. stuff? Nothing. So they just write them down and then leave them at the studio? I think most of them were head charts. Really, just written I mean, on you know, he would do recordings like It's a Man World with an arranger like Sammy Lowe, and it wouldn't be his band. There were charts for that. I never saw him. Right. There had to have been charts for that. I'm sure David Matthews did charts for his arrangements. Um, but as far as the the bulk of the hit records that James made with his own band, those were all head charts. All right. So then for James Brown himself, uh would he could I could I say that I'm assuming that he freestyled a, a majority of this stuff or like he just would have an idea and write down four lines and it, then it really varied. Um oftentimes there'd be an idea and many times well I shouldn't say many, but quite a few times ideas would come from having changed the arrangements of previous hits. Um, okay. You know, like... Um, the Vamp becomes the new song. Exactly. Then, okay, I get it. I mean, Sex Machine came out of a guitar lick that they were doing in Give It Up or Turn It Loose. At some point, they changed the guitar part of Give It Up or Turn It Loose on the road, the, the right. road arrangement. Mm-hmm. And he liked that part and ended up building a song around it with Sex Machine. I see. So then with... But I'm saying like with... I mean, a song that has actual lyrics like Black and Proud, I'm certain was notated on paper or whatnot. But then... Maybe, maybe not, because the story goes, I wasn't at that session, but Charles Bobbitt was, and Bobbitt always claimed that it was a very impulsive thing, like they were talking in a hotel late at night, and Brown was saying there needs to be a song like this, and I've got a lyric, and I suppose he went to Pee Wee and said, let's cook something up around this lyric, and, you know, whether, whether they did it in the studio or the night before in the hotel or on the bus or whatever. But it, but I'm saying it has actual lyric structure. It's a poem. Right, right. But for something like... Uh, escapism, doing it to yeah, death. Escape it. All right. Yeah. So, uh, can totally you explain that? Yeah, all right. So can you explain a song like Escapism? Is it... Right. Escapism, the long version, I think, is, it's like a 20-minute... Yeah, it's ridiculous. ...rap session where they just yeah. talk. Yeah. yeah, I actually talk about that session in the book and tell the whole story, but the short version is he was out at a club in Cincinnati where the De Felice trio was the house band. This was a, a, a cocktail trio, jazz, you know, soft jazz trio right. that mostly played standards, and he used them for a couple of records where he dreamt of being Sinatra for a minute. Oh, yeah, and, there, was, there was a time, actually. Yeah, exactly. That, that exactly. Exactly. Okay. He was hanging out at this club, and somebody used the word escapism. 
in the context of a casual conversation. Like they had a drink and said, you know what's wrong today? All these kids, it's all escapism. They're not paying attention to what's going on in the world and so on. And you said that and I just heard the horn squeal in my head. Right, okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He came into the studio the next day and I was there. This, this was in Cincinnati during my time. And, and as a matter of fact, my brother Eric should be here to tell the story because he actually sat in on the session. He didn't play. But, but he was in the booth the whole day. The session was for, I know you got soul, Bobby Bird. Right. Okay. Oh, we're about to record Bird real quick. Right. I see. Exactly. Aha. That's what the session was for. But James had this obsession with the word escapism. So he comes in, they're running over the track, which was ostensibly going to be for I know you got soul. And at some point he says, Bird, I'm going to do this one. And he ad-libbed escapism thing. And according to Eric, who was actually in the booth, I was in the office. I, I couldn't hang out. It was during the afternoon, so right. I had to be busy. I couldn't just hang in the studio or, you know, mislead. How far, how far is the studio from proximity from where the home offices were? Um, same building. It, it's just, you know, go down a hallway, go through a door, up a ramp, and you're in the studio. Could you hear them, or was it no, like, oh, no, it was the studio? Uh, no, no. no, there was proof. a warehouse between that you had to kind of walk around, but it was all in the same in building. In the same area, okay. Yeah. It was a huge factory-like building. Okay. So, no, you couldn't hear a thing. Okay. But, um, so Eric was saying? Yeah, so he was there, and, and he said that, uh, that you know, James just loved the track, and he was dying to do something with this thing, escapism. And just, if you listen to the record, you realize there's no, as you say, there's no lyrical structure. It's, it's just him, just him fucking with the band yeah. <laughs> and ad-libbing shit. And, I mean, it gets to the point where he's out of ideas, so he starts walking around the studio asking guys, where are you from? You know? <laughs> okay, so when he does that, okay, so during this period, he does that a lot, uh, right. a lot on the JB's records, where he'll talk to uh, Jabbo and talk to various members of the band. Yeah, where are you is from, he, Is he holding a free mic in his hand as he's doing it, or is it like a traditional studio setup that, like, you know, are they like? Well, is he set well, up like his stage show? No, no. Actually, the, the the few times I saw him record with the band, um, probably half dozen, if not a dozen times. It, first of all, he'd be recording live. Okay. And much to the engineer's chagrin, he sacrificed separation in favor of chemistry. Vibe, chemistry. Right. So oftentimes the band was in like a semicircle. And he would just be in the middle. So he didn't have to walk with the mic. He could just, you know, like I'm talking to a mic now. And he would just look and say, hey, Jimmy, you from North Carolina? Tell me about North Carolina. What would you have for breakfast, Fred? Where are you from? L.A.? Yeah, lower Alabama. And just, you know, this is wow. just what he did. Okay. The track goes on and on and on. And, of course, the group was ferocious. And um, he walks in, the, I guess, tape was running out and Ron Lenhoff, the engineer, probably signaled to him like, yo, dude, you know. And he walks in and he says, whoa. And and Eric just wrote this down. He had to remember it. And he says he could quote it perfectly. Um, he said he walks into Ron Lenhoff and he said, well, that, Ron, that's a long one. That's got to be 10 minutes. Ron said, Mr. Brown, it's 21 minutes. <laughs> 
<laughs> and Brown looks at him and said, well, that's enough for part one, two, three, four, and five. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And then, so, of course, after that, they recorded I Know You Got Soul, which has its own legend because of right. Eric B. And yeah. Whatever else. But the thing is, is that they also do this live and rec- at least on the Live of the Apollo. Did they often do escapism live and recreate? Because um, it's almost like it, that spontaneity. Yeah, it's hard to recreate. But they kind of match it on the Apollo record. Or yeah. do you just do no, like, well, oh, this is a one-off for the Apollo? Here's, here's something interesting. When we were going through tapes, back when the tape vault was in Edison, New Jersey, and we had access, we were doing Star Time and a few of the other early CDs. Harry Wanger and I, Harry's an executive at Universal. Um, at Universal. Mm-hmm. We would go to the tape vault and just spend days in there going through tapes. And my whole mission, again, is my discography. What's in the tapes? What's on the tape boxes? Mm-hmm. So I'm just running around and making copies because they had a studio there where I could put the tapes up and burn CDs. Or not, sorry, make cassettes. Cassettes, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and... Um, you know, and this all helped because I'm listening to unissued stuff that I can then document in the discography as well as the complete versions of stuff and get data. Anyway, long story short. So we're going through the tapes for Revolution of the Mind, which was the third Live at the Apollo album. Right. Recorded in 71, right. shortly after he joined Portland Door Records. They recorded eight shows. And pulled from the eight shows to sequence the album. And yes, Harry. That's a culmination we, of eight shows? Yeah. I, I mean, I don't think they used portions of all eight. Maybe they used portions of two or three. Right. But they had eight shows to draw from. And no, I haven't listened to all eight shows. But here's the point someday we'll do a deluxe version. And yes, you do will. Some, you know, <laughs> I've been on Harry to do But, you know, it's, it's universal. It's the 50th anniversary. There you go. Oh, I got Harry's your album. So, that to him. <laughs> so, and he'll kill me for even bringing this up, but, but that's why I bring it up. Um, but here's, here's the interesting thing. The only show he did escapism, all the other shows are identical, meaning the, the sequence right. is identical for, all, for the seven of the eight shows. He only did escapism on the first show. Mm, now, was that important. intentional because he wanted the title on the album? But it wasn't really part of the show yet. Or didn't he like how it came off? I can't tell you why. I can just tell you that there's only one live version of that. Whereas we had eight shows. There's one escapism. Now, after the record came out and hit, it was in the show. But very briefly. And I honestly can't remember what it was like. Um, I just, I can hear the audience actually chanting, you know, the lyrics, which I was like, wow, like they, I'm just baffled that a spontaneous conversation is now a hit single, or at least where people are repeating yeah. a lyric back. Or that yeah. was actually my first thought when I first heard it. I was like, wow, this, this, this was a hit record. And like, right. It's, it's strange. Yeah. People but, knew it. Yeah, of course it? it is. Who did that? I mean, can you see Otis Redding walking around talking to Steve <laughs> Cropper at breakfast? <laughs> <laughs> it's like that wasn't going to happen. So for that particular album, do you remember? All right. So if all the shows were recorded, um, were they all done night after night? Or were these like, okay, we'll record the 12 o'clock show? The three o'clock show. No, he was doing by then. Instead of doing the old four or five shows a day, he'd cut. He'd convinced the Apollos that for his appearances, he would just do two a night and maybe three on the weekends. 
So he um, would do a seven o'clock and a ten o'clock, right? Or? Something like that. And um, yeah, I, when did that they five just, a day they, thing stop? In the seventies, early seventies. So was it that system for the Live of the Apollo two album? Oh sure. So in nineteen was that sixty eight, sixty seven. Oh, Life of the Apollo 2. Volume 2. Um, there was a time it was period. June of 67, and they recorded two and a half shows that we found. We have two complete shows and a, about half of a third show. But what I'm asking is for that particular run at the Apollo, was that the 1 o'clock in the afternoon, the 2 o'clock, or yeah. the 3 o'clock? In 67, yes. Okay, so, and I don't think we went through this the last time. Because I'm still trying to imagine how you squeeze in five shows with. I'm assuming that he at least had a, 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 a sort of a cavalcade of at least four acts. I mean, is Bird doing in, something solo? Is, yeah, is, yeah. In fact, on the deluxe edition, we we they didn't record Bird sets, but they did get two songs on tape, and we used we used he did Sweet Soul music, Arthur Connolly's Sweet Soul music. Mm-hmm. And did we use a second track of his? I don't think so. Um, you got to change your mind, or he must have done something. And yeah, that, okay. was, that was later. I think the only thing that we found was Sweet Soul Music. But, okay. but, but what I'm asking is. Here's is, how, the, you want, not how the show ran. Yes. Okay. The band would come out, and, and this was a shorter. Obviously, you're doing four or five shows a day. They're shorter than you would get in an in a arena or a concert hall. Right where you're just doing one show at 8 o'clock, mm-hmm. and the shows would maybe run three hours. Right. In the Apollos, they'd run maybe an hour 45. Okay. Okay. The band would come out and just do one or two instrumentals, whereas on tour, they might do a half hour of instrumentals. For example, the, the, um, the 1968 Boston show that's on video, mm-hmm. they recently discovered a reel with the instrumental set and they're doing five or six instrumentals before anything happens oh the band is okay um but in the apollo they do one or two just as a warm-up okay then brown would come out and all right let me think back um he would come out and he would would go right into his his nightclub set where he does that's life or if i ruled the world in kansas city all right, now, uh, right that's, now, that's I'm tre- like 15 minutes. I'm treating you as a DVR right now. I'm pausing the show. Right. So, with someone of his stature, ego at least, why would he deflate the balloon so early and not come out with a bang? Like, why was Star Time so late where. Like, was it even fanfare? I've seen some was, shows where he would just walk out. out. Yes, absolutely. The, so he would the, play, MC would, the, the MC would say, now, surprise, the star of the show, James Brown. He's blown out because who expects him to come on the show just started 10 minutes ago? What was his logic? Like, people know that I'm going to show up early. His and so. logic by then, and this was, understand that Live at the Apollo 2 album is just as he's beginning to change his format. Mm-hmm. But even in the old days before that, he would come out earlier and play organ with the band for a half hour. And that um, wouldn't ruin the surprise? No. Really? No. It was all about building. Okay. It was all about building. It, it, and, and his idea was that we're going to save the explosions for the end, of course, for the climax. Mm-hmm. 
And he would come out and he would do, and back to, let's stick with the Apollo 2 in 1967. He would come out and let's say he did That's Life, I Want to Be Around. Both of them, he's sitting in a, in a stool mm-hmm. and just playing nightclub crooner, which was new for him. That was new. He'd never done that before. And he would do this at the Apollo? Yes. It's on the record. What was and, and then, What was the purpose, though, for to do that Frank Sinatra stuff at the Apollo? The purpose was to show another side of him that he was expanding beyond just a predictable soul singer with a predictable review. He was like, I'm an all-around entertainer. He was hoping to get gigs in Vegas and Miami Beach in the lucrative showrooms and, and expand his, his horizons and his audience. All right, so let me pause here. Okay, so let's go to the Copa mm-hmm. or Miami. Now, if he's at a place that's the opposite of the Apollo. Mm-hmm. Same show. Wouldn't, right. So wouldn't the highlight then be the crooning stuff and then sort of be like, oh, this might be, this might be too little rowdy for them. Given them if you all pay for a James no. Brown show, you kind of yeah. You it's good point. You yeah. you kind of know what you're getting, um, and well, would they look, in turn be disappointed? Is it bathroom time or popcorn time? His, like, his whole thing was always about making an audience meet him in his world. It was like I'm not I'm gonna you know I'm gonna make changes and I'm gonna grow as an artist and I'm gonna show different sides of me, but I'm still gonna be true to who I am. I'm not gonna do anything that's gonna disappoint my diehard fans. Okay. He's like, you know, if I can attract that Vegas audience, great. But I'm never gonna turn my back on the hood because that's my base. Okay. So it was like it 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 was like, you got to come to me on my terms. This is who I am, and I'm not going to deny that. So if you don't like hard funk, then you can leave. But I'm going to get you because I'm an entertainer. And even if you don't like my songs or buy my records, I'm going to do something on that stage that's going to make you stop and pay attention. Even in the 70s? Sure. So even by 72 when he's just like, Afroed out and, and well, he had stopped doing the ballads and, and, and that stuff by then. Okay, um, and since I'm really dissecting every now, I, I that, wasn't I wasn't joking about the the food stuff and whatnot, right? Because the main reason why I, I I probe and probe and ask you these questions for the last twenty years I've known you is simply because, I mean, had I been born thirty forty years earlier. I would have been the musician on that stage. So I'm mm-hmm. just curious to see, as a working musician, how our lives compare, like mm-hmm. the quest love of the late 60s. So what I want to know is, uh, it's going to be like a s- stupid question, but I always wanted to know. Okay. I got stupid So with, with, a, with a show that high energy... I know that bottled water wasn't quite invented yet in the late 60s, early 70s. How are they replenishing themselves on the state? Like, is there a water boy on the side? No. Intermission. Intermission. Oh, so you weren't allowed to bring a drink on stage? No, that's not professional. That's why I asked you. Would he allow that? No. Towels even? Up for please, please, please with the capes. <laughs> <laughs> so only for him. So yeah. the band would have to. No, I mean, Jabba or Clyde might have had a towel on the floor next to the kid. 
You okay. know, but don't let nobody see it. And I've never seen in any of the photos. I've never seen set lists. No. Taped to the. Oh, so you would have to know. Yeah. But I mean, basically, remember this is this is a show that was on the road fifty one weeks out of the year and worked sometimes four nights a week, five, sometimes six or seven, depending on the venues and the routing of the. They could probably play it in their sleep. Exactly. Exactly. And the show gradually changed. It didn't change overnight. The set list, um, I mean, like I said, the Apollo 3 and Apollo 2 for them, the set list were the same for each show. Okay. Because there were, there were segues and different dynamics that set up each song, and it was carefully structured. I mean, it was, you know, there was, there was a, a method to the madness in terms of the pacing so that he could catch a breath. Um, you know, as to where the ballads go and so on. I mean, it's, it's showbiz one hundred one. Okay. Uh, um, so, all right, he's crooning. Yeah. Continue. Sorry. Okay. So he does that ten or fifteen minutes, whatever it takes to do that. The last song at that set is Kansas City, which is upbeat, which means that he kicks the stool back, and halfway through Kansas City, he jumps up and starts dancing a little bit. It's a tease. Okay. The band is smoking. Mm-hmm. And he's giving you a tease of James Brown, that that James Brown who slides across the stage on one foot. Just a tease. Mm-hmm. Then he disappears. And here comes Bobby Bird to do two or three songs on two or maybe four songs in the Apollo, maybe two. Then here comes Marva Whitney. Then here comes James Brown again. No introduction. Lights go dark. He walks on stage. Lights come up, and he sings It's a Man's World for 15 minutes. Okay. Right? There was a, a really long version that's, that's on the Apollo 2 album. Right. It's longer on the deluxe CD than it was on the album for obvious reasons. Um, and that's another showstopper because it was a huge hit. And it's a very dynamic, and he incorporates a medley of some of his older Other tunes people. within it, Bewildered, mm-hmm. Lost Someone, some of that stuff to satisfy his older fans. And um, then he goes off stage again. Then either there's a comic, Clay Tyson was our in-house comic who traveled as part of the show, and he'd come out and do 10 minutes of old jokes, and then it'd be an intermission. Questions? Pause. Okay. Oh, I forgot. Then there's the JB dancers who come out and do... Five minutes of dancing while the band plays Caravan or something. Yes, do kind of thing. Oh, so when that <laughs> stuff is playing, so when I'm listening to the stuff on YouTube, they're dancing. The JB dancers are playing or dancing to those instrumentals. No, no. They get a feature in the first part of the show before intermission where they're introduced as the JB dancers and they're downstage center and they do a routine to – Oh, they use different instrumentals on on the the sixty seven Apollo. It was Caravan, right? Um, later on in the sixties, it was Humasa Killers grazing in the grass, and you just pick an instrumental and work out a the song of the day. That, that, that's there in the spotlight. So there's always been a Vegas element to his sure. shows. I've but never... but you know what? It when you say Vegas, it wasn't cheesy, right? I mean, sometimes maybe it was, but but let me put it this way. If it was cheesy, it was black cheesy. Okay? But was it cheesy to you watching it in 1967, 68? No, the girls were hot. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask. Okay. So right now, I'm at my 
bored phase. Like I go through three and phases. They, they weren't out there long enough for you to get put so bored. Well, no, no, no. I'm, I'm just saying that when I when I go through my bored phase, then this is when I start embracing uh, '90s James Brown. Like I'll look at can't get any harder. <laughs> good one. For goodness' sake. Uh, no, no, no. I, I'm just saying that I'll like uh, last week. I watched. Uh, his Woodstock three performance, which was why <laughs> exactly? I don't know when when the rumors of Woodstock ninety nine was just bad all around. When the when the was James Brown murdered rumors started yeah. seeping out. Then I just I don't know. I felt the need to just look at the last ten years of his life to see right. what his show had become. Right. Of which he never strayed away from the formula. Like I. In my mind, I never thought that there were dancing girls and this cover song and that sort of thing. Because on the live albums, you're just getting the James Brown show as you know it. And then once I discovered the tapes, then I realized, like, oh, there are dancing girls and there are that sort of thing. Well, that's why I was so happy with the expanded two-CD version of Apollo 2 because we were able to take the tapes – from the two and a half shows and to the best of our ability recreate what the show really flowed like because the album the original album because of the length of songs they weren't able to sequence it with any logic really Mm -hmm. and the whole mission with the cd was let's create the show with the flow and the you know the ebbs and the peaks I was really it appre- actually was. I was really appreciative that uh, the Frankie Crocker intros were included in that too. So yeah, yeah, Eddie OJ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, can, uh, can I assume that letting Crocker or OJ or a person of the day introduce the show was sort of like a greasy palm? Let me. Well, they, Frankie and Eddie OJ, and it was also Rocky G, who was the program director at WWRL in the mid and late sixties. Um, they would sponsor shows at the Apollo, not just James's where they weren't really promoting the shows because it was in-house, the Apollo, but the Apollo would spiff them to put their names on there. So it would be Frankie Crocker and Eddie O.J. present James Brown. And and that's something the Apollo had been doing for years and years. Um, Wait, slight slight jump into the future. Because I always wanted to know... you got to use uh, fast-forward on your Alan Leeds remote control. <laughs> okay. So at the 1999 tour that you were uh tour managing, uh Crocker also introduces Vanity 6. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what was the lo- like whose idea was that? Was it just Hey, if you want me to play I'm, their records, then or I, was that you or was no, that I, I I wasn't at the New York show. It was I came in right after that. Oh. So okay. I can't, but but I'll tell you what I do remember. I remember before I went to work for Prince when Vanity Six record came out and Nasty Girls took off. Mm-hmm. I happened to be home in Brooklyn at the time with what was what was it then? Kiss? What station? No, it was um, WBLS. BLS. BLS. Frankie was on BLS at the time, and um, they did a promo uh, studio visit with Frankie. Right that I happened to hear and um, just happened to have the radio on in the apartment in Brooklyn. And because I was already a fan of Prince and Nasty Girls, I paid attention. And um, 
they seemed to bond. It, it, I mean, it was a really playful interview that was memorable. Yes, yeah, he flirted it was, with everyone. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. Okay. And, and all I remember is they kept saying every time he'd, he'd ask them a question, um, Susan and, and, and V would go like, Frankie, 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 Frankie. And, and it just stuck with me. And it was okay. like, okay. <laughs> okay. I want to meet them. <laughs> you know, and with no idea that I would. That, you, that yeah. you'd be connected <laughs> but, to them forever. But, so, so you know, look, everybody knew Frankie had juice. I mean, he was New York radio. Okay. And um, you'd be crazy to come to town and not let him get on stage and say hello if he wanted to. Just as good to you as it is for you. You get so much with the Frankie Crocker touch. After all, how can you lose with the stuff I use? Turn out the light and hold me tight. Frankie says it's just got to be all right. Closer than whites on rice. Closer than coals on ice. Closer than the collars on a dog. Closer than the hams on a country hog. Really? Young and do. Ain't never had enough of nothing. Definitely ready if you need it. Be steady. Everything's going to be everything. But remember, if you can't stand it, please don't demand it. Don't let your eyes get your mind messed up where your heart and soul desire something you know you just can't stand. Really? All I have to do is set the needle to the track, separate the soul from the wax, lay in the groove, and hope to make you move. All right, y'all, you know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring, but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. Okay, so he comes out and does the, this gargantuan It's a Man's World. This whole episode is just going to be about <laughs> yeah, right. Apollo Bonding <laughs> too. And then uh, you said that uh, comedians – so does this formula – I assume that we're going to get to star time after intermission. Right, of course. Does this formula work all over the United States? Yeah. 
It's foolproof. Yeah. Sure. Not one person trying to boo Clay Tyson or... Oh, there were people who didn't want to hear him. Yeah, All right. Sure, there were kids who didn't want to hear him, and then there were people who did. Because let, let's, you, you have to... And this is really difficult to explain to anyone under the age of 50, I suppose. Um this all came out of vaudeville. Right. And that was that was Brown's template for creating a review, a self-contained show. Remember that most solo artists traveled solo or with their own accompaniment and so on, but they, they didn't have reviews because they either couldn't afford them or just weren't interested. Mm-hmm. Um, James Brown's idea was like, let's do all this in house. I'm tired, you know. When he was when he was younger, before he was had the influence and the success to to take over things, um, he would be like everybody else, and they'd be on shows where there'd be different acts every night. Depending, you know, if you were in Chicago, you might have Martha and the Vandellas or Gene Chandler, or the Impressions or the Drifters on the show with you, and then you go to Cincinnati the next day, and it's Otis Redding and Carla Thomas, and you, you, you never know, because the, the promoters would, first of all, they never felt that there was one entertainer who could sell out a theater or an arena on their own. So they felt obligated to take two or three semi-stars and a bunch of one record acts and put a package together. And the idea was to have nine or ten acts, most of whom just did two or three songs. The star would do a half an hour. And you had those tours, and you've probably seen the vintage posters of that stuff, mm-hmm. and they would go all over the country. So that's what people were used to. James Brown said, why do I have to share the revenue with all these other acts? Let me get my own acts. Let's let Bobby Bird do three songs. Let's let Baby Lloyd, one of the other flames, do a couple songs. Let's get a girl singer who's cute and can hold a note, and let's she do three songs. And they go on salary. So I'm not paying, uh, or the Extra. promoter isn't paying Eddie James or the Drifters and so on. I got my own review. And the template, of course, was vaudeville because that's where theater shows came from. And, and if you go back and look at the bills, the, the, the weekly um, bills of the Apollo Theater throughout the 60s and well, going all the way back to the 30s, but even in the 60s at the height of the soul music era, there would always be a comedian. There would always be a vocal group. There would always be a male singer. There would always be a female singer. And then God knows what else they needed to fill up the show. It was always a package, um, unless you were Duke Ellington, you know, who would also play the Apollo. But okay. even he would have his own, his own singers that would get a, you know, Count Basie had Joe Williams for years and years, and, and Ellington had singers. So people expected variety, a variety show. And the idea was that you have sex, you have something for the guys, you have something for the girls, and you have some laughs, and you have some good instrumental music. And you had to have all those things to be a complete show. And that's what audiences expected. Damn, the roots have failed. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's some comedy in this set, I think. <laughs> I, I have a, I have a, a question. Um, yeah, I want to get back to the roots comedy, but go ahead. You're first. <laughs> since, since we're at intermission of the show. Um, so far, besides the comedy, it sounds like the band 
is out there the entire time? Sure. The, the same band. Yeah. All right. I just want to make yeah. that make that clear Absolutely. to the listeners. Absolutely. But it should be noted that James Brown often had two or three drummers. Yeah. Yes. And they and all two traveled. guitarists and a bassist. Right. They all went to the to the same gigs. I mean, so they would switch yeah. out. No, no, no. So, there was one band that traveled on the same bus and went to the same gigs. Absolutely. But different drummers would switch out for different acts. For different songs. Okay. Different songs. I mean, there there were listen, when he recorded um I mean, that's a whole other tangent for a second. Um I want to get back to the Roots comedy just for a split second because I have an inspiration. <laughs> I have an idea that it's, it's, it's so obvious you probably don't want to do it because it's too, it's too obvious. But you can do thank you notes <laughs> uh, okay. and translate that somehow to the stage. You know what? Because either you or Tariq, all I somebody hate, has to do is do this. I hate to say this, but when James is on these shows with us, it's like they get mad right, if he, if does, he does, does not do <laughs> thank you notes. Yeah. They yell thank you notes now, and we look at each other like, <laughs> so it's not just me. <laughs> One more note. One more note. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's good. <laughs> my, my, okay. My, my other so, question, sorry. About, and then we'll talk uh, drummers. This, the show also sounds like, it, like you said, it's supposed to build, but it also sounds somewhat chronological. Is that is that correct as far as like his earliest and then his and then leading, leading up to, to the, the big single or my latest um, single? Not necessarily, but but you save the hits for the start time segment, obviously. Oh, and even his oldest hits. Yeah, okay. yeah. Try me and please, please, please were the oldest songs that he would continue to do. Did them up until he stopped working. Um, we're always in the start time set. So after intermission, it's start time. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, it's start time at the Apollo Theater. Million dollar seller, try me. Please, please, please. Papa's got a brand new bag. This is a man's world. Most constructive tune of 1966, don't be a dropout. Say it again. Recently recorded, let yourself go. Baby, don't you weep. Let's bring him on right now. Everybody, the hardest working man in show business. I'm going to let you say his name. James Brown, ladies and gentlemen, and the famous lady. And that's a half hour, 35 minutes. What? Start time. Start time. It it usually ran about an hour. I mean, in the old days, it was, in the old days in the Apollo when they still had more support acts. For example, Apollo One was recorded in 1962, and on the show was Bobby Womack and the Valentinos, Solomon Burke. There were other real recording artists were on that show. Those shows recorded? No, oh, no, damn. exactly. Blake um, <laughs> Pigmeat Markham was on the show. Right. Um, you know, so Brown would do, I mean, the Apollo one album is about 35 minutes and there's only one song cut out. So, so he was doing 40 minutes, but by 67 start time, I mean, he had so many hits. It, it pretty much was an hour and that, that pretty much stayed that way until he changed the format in the late seventies. So you're saying from the instrumentals all the way to the Clay Tyson, It's a Man's World, before intermission, mm -hmm. that's kind of like 45 minutes? Or an hour. I mean, you And the know. bathroom break's 10 minutes, obviously. Yeah, that's it. 
and then he does 50 minutes to an hour right. and ends the show. Right. Okay, in your observation, they're doing this four to five times a day? They were up, in, up until 69, I guess, is when he started. Where do back. you feel the best show normally is? Like, Or was there no, there is no, uh, he didn't do that much energy tonight. As opposed, like, can he keep it up a hundred percent through all four or five shows? All five shows. No. So for you, no, but the, the best the, show but to the, catch is. But with, with James Brown, the difference, the difference between the slow show and the hot show is not that vast. So who's in the audience I mean, at the you, one you, at the one o'clock on a weekday? Um, some old ladies, some yeah, drunks, and, who's there and kids who cut school. <laughs> Literally. So it's a weekday. Yeah. 1 p.m. Yeah. Police aren't in the audience. Like, shouldn't you be in school? They may have occasionally. I don't know. These shows were sold out? No. They weren't sold out? No. Was he disappointed? Were no, he like, I, I got I my mean, money anyway? By the late 60s, they were. But, but it wasn't typical to sell out every show. You couldn't do it. I mean. Hmm. Okay. I mean, there were times where you would play to half a house at one o'clock in the afternoon. And that was n- not deflating to his ego or nothing? Like he was understanding that, oh, it's one o'clock in the afternoon? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But why would yeah. they? I mean, well, you got to see this tradition goes back to the 1930s. Yeah. Okay. And I mean, I, I guess we surmised that people in the 1930s didn't have that much to do at one o'clock. I don't know <laughs> why, but but it's it's always been that. And I mean, it it's you know the the, the white vaudeville theaters in Midtown Manhattan were doing the same thing, but they were doing it with Sinatra or Woody Herman instead of James Brown or Duke Ellington. Um, it was just the world we lived in. And people would go to, you know, people who didn't want to fight the crowds at night because obviously the 7 and 10 o'clock shows were the busiest shows. And so depending on the demographic that an artist appealed to, um, you know, it might be kids. It might be older people. It might be people who are bored and have nothing to do. I'd like to think that maybe the seven o'clock was the better show because that's where yeah, you're not the hotter tired women. Yet. Well, no, yeah, the, the yeah. hotter women like you're you're, you're you're off work and it's date night or something like right. that. Right, happy hour. Yeah, I mean, mm. obviously weekends. But to, to, to answer your question directly, the hottest show was the midnight show on Saturday. Whoa! See, I figure he'd be worn out by then. He might be, but but all the players are there. Mm. The audience is hot. Okay. So the audience you could, you the couldn't energy. you couldn't you couldn't skate. Okay. Okay. And the other one was the Wednesday night late show because that's amateur night, huh. and that brought out a serious audience that was dedicated to amateur night. So where where would amateur night fit in? Late on a Wednesday show. On the late show. What time? Like after James is over? You know, I I I, I can't honestly tell you. And it was a separate audience, separate let out, let in? No, 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 no. It was like a movie theater. If you bought a ticket at 1 o'clock, you could stay there all day and all night. You could watch. Kids could come in on Saturday morning and watch four shows. Oh, they didn't clear the theater? Nope. Is it standing room or is it seats? 
there were I mean, there's there's a little you've been in the Apollo. There's standing room in the back, but it's of course it's seats. So, but the people were there pre-brought tickets back in the day. No, like James Brown is coming May nineteenth. No. Oh, let me go and get tickets. No, ahead of you time. just lined up outside, and as people left, they let people in. So it was like a nightclub in a theater. Exactly. You know, if, 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 I mean, there were times where they'd be lined up and actually be standing in line through a whole show that's going on inside because they're hoping they can get in for the next show. Now, that's if you're hot. I mean, it wasn't typical of every week in every show. Right. But by the time Brown really, really got hot in the mid 60s, it was frequently like that. And but, there'd be a line around the block all the way up 125th Street. But I would think that. They would do a show, clear the place, and let people buy tickets. Like he could make more money. Of course, and that's what they he never once thought of that. <clears throat> of course, they did, and he insisted they do that. Oh, at a certain point, and I want to say that point was either in '68 or early '69. Is when he went to the Apollo and said, "Look, the only way I'm doing this is do two shows. I'll do three on Saturday, and you got to clear the house." And was that foreign to them back in the day? Like? Yes, absolutely. Wow. Because it was the same. It was That's just how the theater was run. And it was typical of all these vaudeville theaters. So I could have bought a James Brown ticket for $5, walked, walked <laughs> to the Apollo. At one how, much how much was the ticket? Oh, sorry. Two sorry. bucks? Two dollars. Two? Two fifty? <laughs> and saw Three? And seen like, all right, let me get my inflation wow. calendar yeah, out. In the mid-60s? <laughs> yeah. 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 One for me, one for your mom, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, I mean, two dollars in nineteen sixty-seven. That's me spending what twenty-two bucks today. Yeah, maybe I don't know. Wow. So, but I mean, I, I, I bet the, the earliest show, and we're saying one o'clock, but maybe it was two o'clock, three o'clock. I don't know, but never any later than that. And the first show was probably for a buck, except on weekends. I mean, envision an old movie theater. What a time I mean, to be alive. Yeah. I mean, it, it was crazy. Now, obviously, shows had to be an automatic pilot at some point because it's it's just how can – even if you're not physically tired, how do you get mentally amped? Right. Particularly somebody like Brown or, or his band who worked so hard. And then you come off stage and they basically show a film – a movie? Yeah. But but a, like a short? A, yeah, a short. Okay. And, and, and the, the joke always was they'd find the worst movies because they were trying to encourage people to get up and leave. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm, and, I'm but, cheating right now on my uh, calculator, by the way. So if I were to pay $2 to see James Brown in 1967... Fifteen dollars and forty-five cents. Yes, fifteen bucks and fifty-six. Okay, so that's still cheap. Yeah, yeah. And you could have seen like four shows that day for fifteen bucks. Sure. Wow. Absolutely. Whoa. And so, <laughs> ah, I'm, the standards of the day and back then, because then I would think, wow, you've seen this joke before, or you've seen this song sure. before, like the same people. Yeah. But. No, I mean, obviously, everybody didn't right, do that. Right, right, right. You know, right. There's, a, there's a handful of nuts who just either really love the artist. And I'm raising my hand. Or, <laughs> or, they got, or they got absolutely nothing else to do. I'm raising my um, hand. No. You know, or they found some good weed and they don't want to blow their groove, so they just Steve's sit there. raising his hand. 
Okay. Um, wow, for two bucks, you could just have the best entertainment of your life. Yeah. Right. All day. What's his, what's his merch game looking like? Were there T-shirts back then or there like were programs? Just programs. There were program books starting in, I guess the earliest one was 1960, but that was from a tour. It wasn't in the theater. But they, they saw program books and they used to have hats that would have a little picture of him in the band and, um, you know, different junk. But they, they never had T-shirts. T-shirts weren't, weren't the thing then. It was um, program books and photos. You'd get a, 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 okay. a glossy or a button. Okay. You know, they had said loud buttons. They wow. sold well. Okay. Okay. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. So you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring, but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. So the show's over, and how long is a break before? 45 minutes, maybe an hour. I mean, I'd have to sit and do the math. I can't, you know, it's been a long time. But All right, so let's say 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. I'm his drummer. What am I doing? All right, there's, there's in all these theaters, and this goes for the Howard in Washington, and the Uptown in Philly, and... Regal in Regal Chicago, Chicago. exactly from that circuit. Again, old vaudeville thing. There's a chalkboard backstage, mm-hmm. and the stage manager of the theater puts up what's called the half hour. And in vaudeville parlance, what that means is this is a half hour before the next show starts. If the next show is going to start at eight o'clock, then the half hour is seven thirty. You post that in advance to let everybody in the cast know you got to be back here at 7.30. That was the rule. you got to be back in the house a half hour before the show starts. Okay. Okay? Now, what you do up until that time is your business. So you can go up to the dressing room 
and go to sleep. You can go down in the basement and shoot craps. You can go, go down the street. Those you know. dressing rooms are small as hell, though. Yeah. And I'm certain that James and his entourage are taking up most rooms. Sure. So where does the band go in the basement? Well, they, they, I don't, now, the Apollo is nice now. Yeah, right. Was it, it, it nice no, in the 60s? No, the basement looked like... Rats? The, yeah, it was rough. I mean, it wasn't anything like it is now. It wasn't It wasn't puddles of water in the corner. It was like the basement of some factory or something. That is so weird because in the basement... Uh, they would rehearse there, actually. The shows would open Friday. They would play Friday through Thursday. And on Thursdays, the next days, the new show would rehearse in the basement. So when you're upstairs, the James Brown show is playing up there. Then right. There might be Sam and Dave in the basement working with the house band to get ready for tomorrow's opening. While the show's... Sure. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. So wait a minute. Um, so in the laundry room in the basement of the Apollo... There's now a sign that hangs that says, like, this is now the Flip Wilson room because Flip Wilson would play here five nights a week and he would just set up, uh, he would put a couch in the laundry room and sometimes sleep here overnight. Uh, I, I would assume to save cash or whatever. But you're saying that the basement was less than desirable. Yeah, it's not living. where I want to spend the night, but do what you got to do. Wow. Okay. Okay. Food-wise, is there catering back then, or do you, no. you just... No. If, if, if you could afford it, you'd send some gophers out to go down the street. And was James a feed-my-band person was like, go no. for what you... Are you kidding? Really? <laughs> Dude, we would get on his Learjet. Now, I'm fast-forwarding to, like, 70, 71. We'd get on the Learjet. He had a Learjet which, in which, the 60s, too. He got it in 66. You're right. Okay. Um, I'm talking about when I was there. I can okay. only speak when I was there. And Danny Ray's, one of his many gigs was to make sure there was food for Brown after the show on the Learjet because frequently we'd fly out. Depending on what city we were in, he didn't like spending the night in small towns. So if we were playing Macon, Georgia, we would fly to Atlanta because he had a favorite hotel there. If we were playing in, in well, same same thing wherever you were. Yeah. If, if you were in, in if you were in Illinois, he'd go yeah, to Chicago. Yeah, go to Chicago exactly. Right. So he had you know different places where he liked the hotels and where they had late night food and things to do and so on. So. So we got to if if you happen to be flying with him on the jet, the jet only seats five or six people. I forget, but small. It's a small plane, and um, it would be Danny Ray, who was his valet, and Henry Stallings, who was a bodyguard slash hairstylist, and maybe his <laughs> wife or maybe his girlfriend. Or, yeah, right. And then there'd be room if if he wanted to talk to one of the musicians. Maybe it would be Pee Wee or Fred, the band leader, because he'd have an idea for a new song or want to change something in the show, and he'd make them fly with him. And on the weekends, because I wasn't on the road constantly, our job was in the office mm -hmm. Monday through Thursday. And then on Fridays, one or both of us would fly out and meet the show wherever it was and hang on the weekend and then go back to the office um, un unless we had to go to another city to advance the promotion of an upcoming show. Let's say tickets were slow selling in Nashville. So maybe you know, Brown would say, you better go to Nashville and go visit the radio stations and give the promotion a boost, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So we're not on the same schedule as the show. Um, 
But he, you get on the Learjet and there'd be food for him. But nobody else. And nobody else. <laughs> Ouch. And you oh, just sit there man. and watch him eat. And, and it was, you know. <laughs> and uh. you, you just realize he, he's the boss and this is, this is how he rolls. And, and everybody else is on their own. And, you know. It's like, okay, I can feed myself. I'm not going to beg for food. See, my rule is that whatever I buy, I have to buy five times as much because each member of the Roots is going to ask me. For a little bit. Can I have that? Oh, what's that? Can I have a French fry? Well, listen, each one of the band could ask James for food. Do can have a French fry? And he'd say no. (laughs) That's all you got to learn is no. (laughs) I see. Yeah, I always wanted to know, um, because of the way that Otis Redding passed away, was he ever afraid of flying on Learjets afterwards? Or, you know, was he like, oh, no more flying for me? He was a little afraid all along, even before Otis's accident. I mean, he was always a nervous flyer when there was bad weather. And I was actually in the jet in a lightning storm once, and it wasn't fun. Because that thing bounced around like a like a ping pong ball. Um, the small no, light. I'll plane. walk to the next gig, Mr. Brown. Yes, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> it, was, it was a bit of an adventure, and you could see him tightening up. I mean, he was you know he wasn't crazy, but he loved the convenience of it. The idea that he could play some stupid town, and then and I mean. If, if I'll use the same example, if we played Macon, Georgia, and he didn't want to stay there, we'd be in Atlanta in the hotel by 12.30. You know, the show comes down at 10.30 or 11, and he dries off, and then you get out, and you're in the plane by 12, and, you know, the, well, okay, maybe not 12.30, but 1 or 1.30. Mm-hmm. You know, it's still doable hours, and in a major city, you can probably still find something decent to eat. I have a question about... Uh Advances normally, at least today, tour managers collect the money. Now, at least in our standard today, when you book an act, uh, you're supposed to have half the money up front sure. in months in advance, three, four months in advance, and before said act goes on stage, maybe an hour before, you're supposed to settle advances and get the rest of the deposit before they go on stage. Was it always that protocol, or did you guys have to wait until all box office receipts were counted? Because we were promoting most of the shows ourselves, we weren't waiting for somebody to pay us. It was our money. So who's there to count? Like, who's there to make sure that, you know... Road manager, personal manager, when I'm on the road, me, or Bob Patton, who was my colleague with booking the tour... Whichever one of us was there, if we were all there, we'd all go up and we would do the settlements. But the settlements wouldn't – you had to wait for the box office to close. So if the show started at 8, chances are you can't start settling until 9 or 9.30. Now, there's no deposits because we're renting the buildings. We're the promoters. I see. Okay. So who's to stop, say – let's – all right. We're in in Chattanooga, Tennessee right now Mm -hmm. at at a theater. So who's to stop the uh, maybe the guy that the house manager or somebody from letting his eight family members in for free? Like you know that there's six hundred seats in the theater, mm-hmm. and you know the show's sold out. So are you saying that okay, well six hundred tickets at you know four bucks each, right. twenty four twenty four hundred, whatever? 
are you who's to enforce if someone comes short? All right, here's what happens. The, the box office, you know, there were variations on this, but let's use the, the, the standard rule. The box office of a venue would give you a report at some point, 9, 30, 10 o'clock at night. And on that report would be how many tickets were sold at which price because you'd have different prices, $3 tickets, $5 tickets, whatever. How many comps came through the door? Mm-hmm. And if the number of comps was reasonable – you wouldn't squawk about it because if, 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 if you had a successful date and, and the manager of the building wanted to let his kids in, to use your example, right? it's like I'm not going to make an issue with that because we want to play that building again and I want this building manager to give us first dibs at good dates. Right. We would even tip them. Oh. Literally, literally tip them. For real? Yeah. I mean, these were city employees, and I talk about this in the book, too, and how different the business was back then. It's basically what the book is about. And um, they were city employees that made a, you know, very middle class, if, if that, income. They're on salary from the city that manage these, these um, arenas. Oh, so okay. they weren't privately owned? Some Bank, banks didn't so, run. No, it, it's a mere, it varied. You take five venues, the structures of them might be completely different. If you're playing a theater, it might be privately owned. If you're playing a, a dance hall, it might be it might be a local promoter who rented the building, and you're dealing with that promoter. Um, if you play the Apollo, you're dealing with the owner of the theater. But if you're playing an arena, which is mostly what we were doing when I was there. The guys who run those buildings, are they're usually city-owned buildings. Okay. Okay? And you go to Roanoke, Virginia, or Cincinnati, um, there's, there's no Donald Trump building arenas. There right. was, you know, and, and this was before there were sponsorships and the arenas all had names of banks and stuff on them because you didn't have that. And even then, if, 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 if the bank is sponsoring an arena, it doesn't mean they run it. There's still a guy who's got the job to run the arena or run the box office and so on. And these are not guys getting rich. They're just on a city salary. Right. If it's, assuming it's a city-owned building. So, um, you know, so you'd look the other way. As long as the, the, the comps were, were kosher, you know, it's 500 comps, we're going to fight. But, you know, if it's 20, who cares? And mind you, we would also give out comps to radio people and newspaper people and, you know, anybody that was going to help us build the promotion. So comps were like uh, it was a you know it was a commodity that we could use to influence the promotion. So there'd always be a certain amount of comps. But he, but here's the deal: if you didn't trust the promoter or the building for any reason at all, the only way you could deal with it then was count the ticket stubs to see if the ticket stub counts. Because you get a stub, they tear the ticket when you come in and throw it in a bucket and keep the stubs. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. So there were nights where we literally had to sit down and count thousands of ticket stubs and you'd be there till two in the morning because you felt something about the report was fishy. It's like, wait a minute, there's 10,000 tickets, 10,000 seats in here. The place is jam packed and you're telling me you sold 7,500 tickets. Mm. It's bullshit. So now I'm going to count the ticket stubs. 
Now, what stopped them from pulling out a thousand stubs before I got up there? Nothing. So there were some times where we actually would put a guy on the door with a clicker. (laughs) Really? To count the people that came in so that you could then match that. In some venues, the tickets were were just rolls of tickets and they were numbered. And you'd get the number of the starting ticket Mm -hmm. so you could do the math at the end of the night. It was a mom-and-pop business. So I have a question. I would assume that you guys were the standard or the best game in town for a black tour in during that period. What stops mob activity from wanting to... I was getting ready to go there, yeah. What stops mob activity from saying, like, oh, like now it's hard to do because corporations... Like, if you remember that Sopranos episode where... Uh, where uh, Tony's guys like go into the Starbucks for the first time and they're trying to shake down the Starbucks and then it's slowly realizing like, oh, this isn't like a mom and pop operation like art. And they realize like, oh, shit, we're dinosaurs because we can't shake down a corporation like we used to. Mm -hmm. So or not what stops like have people tried to. Sure. I want a piece of the action. Sure. How do you wrangle out of that? Like, how do you... You don't have a manager who's mobbed up. You don't have a booking agency that's mobbed up. And you're not on a record company that's mobbed up. And there were mob influences in all three of those areas. But there were booking who protects agents... You, who protects you from someone trying to edge in? Yeah. Who's to stop a Suge Knight of the 60s? The only thing I can say is this. When I went to work for James, one of the things he told me is, if anybody fishy ever tries to buddy up to you and acts like they want in or want to get next to me or become your friend and make offers that sound too good to be true, let me know immediately. And that was his way of saying, don't let that happen. Hmm. And I can only say that he was smart enough and discriminating enough about who he hired that there was never one of us in a position that could have encouraged that kind of element. And I'm I'm, I'm sure it was trying me to listen. The mob had pieces of studios, recording studios in New York. The mob had certain, a lot of independent record labels were mobbed up. There were several booking agencies that booked black artists that were mobbed up. Not all of them. I mean, they they were everywhere. Time out. Time out, ladies and gentlemen. I know you hate when this happens, but you know it had to happen. Yes, you're going to have to wait for part two of this story. With Alan Leeds. Of course, he has a gazillion stories. And yes, you Prince fans, I'm not going to leave you out. You know good and well he's going to tell some Prince stories in addition to more James Brown stories. So tune in next week for another epic episode of the Alan Leeds Questlove Supreme Return Show. Thank you. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. This classic episode was produced by the team at Pandora. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring? 
but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. 